Today's scripture reading is taken from Hebrews 2, 5 to 18, and it's found on page 1001 of your two Bibles, or right behind me. Now it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now putting everything into subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with the glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom, by whom, all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the ones who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offsprings of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 2. Started our journey through this book a few weeks ago, and we are continuing this morning. And as we do, let's pray and ask God to lead us. Lord, our greatest need right now is to hear from you. Not what any of us have to say, not what I have to say, what you have to say, and what you are saying through your word. So God, give us ears to hear you. May your spirit be at work in us to give us eyes to see you. And may our hearts be transformed through what you have to say this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For some reason, I have always been intrigued with the legend of Billy the Kid, which is kind of weird because he was a murderer and not a good guy at all, but maybe it's because I watched Young Guns a bazillion times as a child, or maybe it's because growing up in Nebraska, the Wild West was kind of a thing, and you, you know, we're, we were into that. I've always been fascinated with this story, and so I was intrigued a couple years ago by a National Geographic special 
about the attempt to uh, validate the authenticity of a newly discovered photograph of Billy the Kid. Up to this point, there was only one validated photo in history of him, and uh, this guy thought he had found one, and it was kind of his journey to figure out, is this thing real? Because if they could prove it was real, it would be worth millions. And they were able to convince some people that, yes, this thing is real, and they, they valued it at $5 million, which is kind of cool when you consider that the guy paid $2 for it from a junk shop in California. It's a pretty good return on investment. But then you think about it. The poor junk shop dealer, right? Or, or the poor family who, who left that thing sitting in a storage unit and let that storage unit default so that the junk shop dealer got it and then could sell it for $2. They didn't know what they had. They didn't know what they had. That picture was an inheritance. It had, it had clearly been handed down from generation to generation, but at some point, someone in the family ended up neglecting their inheritance. They didn't realize what they had, the value or significance of it, until later watching it on TV, finding out it's too late. We have an inheritance in Christ, and it is worth far more than a rare picture. According to Scripture, those who belong to Jesus will inherit the world to reign with Jesus over his new creation forever. It's the picture of Revelation 22. We have a glorious inheritance waiting for us in the end, and yet it is surprisingly easy to neglect it, to get distracted with the worries or the opportunities of the present, to lose sight of its value, to allow ourselves to become satisfied with lesser things, eventually to forget that it even exists or willingly leave it behind because the cost of holding on to it seems too much. It does, doesn't seem worth it. These were some of the pressures that were facing the church to whom the book of Hebrews was written. This pressure to drift from the gospel of Christ, to give up or, or fail to hold fast to their confession of faith, whereas chapter 2, verse 3 puts it, the temptation, the temptation to neglect the great salvation we have in Christ, this inheritance that's been promised to us. And so the author has made it his goal to convince us in every way of the supremacy of Jesus. And the great salvation we have in him. In his introduction that we looked at a couple weeks ago, he persuaded us that Jesus is better than the prophets of the Old Testament. Since he is the final and full revelation of God's salvation. And then last week we saw how Jesus is superior to angels, to all angelic messengers. Which makes his message of salvation all the more urgent for us to listen to. He's better and our passage this morning, Steve just read for us, actually expands on that same topic of Jesus' superiority to the angels. The superiority of his message of salvation over the message delivered by angels, which uh, was the old covenant. 
Notice how he continues talking about angels. He mentions them again in verse 5 and 7 and 9 and 16. He's still on the same subject. And he continues talking about our salvation. The world to come in verse 5. Or how Jesus is the founder of our salvation in verse 10. The same salvation that he said we are to inherit in 114. This great salvation he warns us not to neglect in 2.3. He's on the same subject. And so he continues to make this case for the superiority of Jesus over angels, and therefore the superiority of his message over theirs. But the way he makes his case in these verses is different. In chapter 1, he showed how Jesus was better than angels by contrasting the Son with angels. The Son is the Messiah, the angels are not. The Son is the Creator and the King, the angels are created servants. So he contrasts them to show how Jesus is better. In our passage, he shows his supremacy over angels by connecting Jesus to us. By showing that because of our brotherhood with Christ, the family bond that we have in our shared humanity, which is something the angels don't have, and because of what Christ has then done as our brother to secure our inheritance... To bring many sons to glory through his suffering. Because of that, Jesus is better. And we need to pay even more attention to him. Lest we neglect our inheritance. Lest we forget what's truly waiting for us. We can summarize the main point of this passage like this. Jesus is the better brother who brings us to glory... By sharing our humanity and suffering for our sin. He's the better brother who brings us to glory by sharing our humanity and by suffering for our sin. So, so how does he make this case? He starts in verses 5 through 9 by reminding us who the rightful heirs of salvation are. And what kind of inheritance they have to look forward to. So in other words... He, he tells us what's waiting in the storage unit and who it actually belongs to. That's his goal in verses 5 through 9. And his first point, it doesn't belong to angels. That's not who the inheritance is for, verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. This salvation that is to be inherited, the, the great salvation we can't neglect. The world to come, as he puts it here. So, the heavenly kingdom waiting in the end, that's not something that angels are going to rule over. That kingdom instead was meant for humanity. Hum humans are the rightful heirs of the world to come. Those who are going to reign with God and Christ over his new creation for all eternity. Again, Revelation 22 paints that picture. And the evidence here... For this, that, that it's humans that inherit salvation, not angels. The evidence here comes from God's original design and creation, which the author describes by quoting Psalm 8. It has been testified somewhere, which is one of my favorite things about the author of Hebrews. He doesn't take the time to figure out which book or reference it was. Somewhere it says, What is man? That you are mindful of him. Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection to his feet. 
And so God's design in the beginning, clear back in Genesis 1, and celebrated in Psalm 8, was to display His greatest glory not through the heavens above, which you might think, because of the majesty and magnitude of the universe, that's a great way to kind of show His glory off. But no, His design was to display His greatest glory through humans, people made in His image. We were the crowning act of creation, whom He made a little lower than the angels, and in whom He called to rule creation on His behalf. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness to display His glory, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. He asks us to rule on his behalf. That was his design. And so so his original intention was for creation to be ruled under him by people made in his image, by humans. And if that was his original intention, then it follows pretty clearly that this is also his ultimate intention. That that he's going to restore what was lost in the beginning. And that's the point Hebrews is making here. That the world to come, the completion of God's salvation and kingdom, the inheritance, will be in subjection not to angels, but to humans, the rightful heirs. Now we're putting everything in subjection to him, to humanity. He left nothing outside his control. That was the goal. But there's a pretty big problem, isn't there? This was God's design. This was his ultimate goal. But it is not our present reality. It's not our present reality. Middle of verse 8. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. To Adam, to humanity. We see signs that that inheritance has begun. The signs and and wonders and various miracles he talked about in verse 4, those were all indications that the age to come has broken into the present in part, but it is not here in full. Creation is not in subjection to us, right? Rather, this world is a mess, and that's not hard to see. Because we're a mess in this world. We who are supposed to be ruling it on behalf of God for the sake of His glory, uh, we have a tendency of making everything about us instead. Nor do we perfectly reflect the image of God anymore as people. I mean, just look at your neighbor. Take a look. Your neighbor was made in the image of God. They are imbued with inherent dignity and value and worth because of that. But do they perfectly reflect the glory of God and all His holiness, righteousness, love, and mercy? Be honest. There's no offense here. Because none of us are perfect reflections of God's glory. We're just not. Because we've all been stained by sin. We've all been stained by sin, by our rebellion against God. And that sin not only distorts His image in us, and dulls our hearts and destroys our relationships and and decays this very world that we're supposed to rule and inherit, that sin separates us from God. Through our rebellion, we actually forfeit the inheritance that was supposed to be ours. 
It's like a royal son, a prince, who gets tired of waiting for his father, the king, to die, and instead just tries to take the throne for himself. Not only does he destroy the relationship with his father, not only does he forfeit his inheritance, there's no way he's getting the kingdom now, not after that. He actually ends up committing high treason against the king and brings upon himself the sentence of death. That's us. That's the story of human history. The story of fallen humanity. And, and so, of course, we don't see this world in subjection to humanity right now. We don't see the glory of God, the glory of our inheritance, realized and enjoyed. Not while sin and death remain a problem. But, verse 9, we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The inheritance that humanity forfeited through our sin, that we forfeit through our sin, is not lost because there is one human crowned with glory and honor. One brother who shares our status as being lower than angels and who was found faithful before the Father to receive his glorious crown. But the glory that he receives doesn't just come from his faithfulness, from his moral perfection. But as verse 9 emphasizes, it comes from his suffering. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus did this for us. He deals with the very problem that keeps us away from our inheritance, from receiving and enjoying that salvation to come. He deals with sin and death. And in fact, he's the only one qualified to deal with it. And that's what the author explains in verses 10 through 18, how Jesus is this only brother who's able to secure our inheritance for us. But when you think about it, it is not even remotely fair that Jesus suffers. He didn't do anything wrong. He's the only one, in, I mean, we all say that, right? He's the only one in history who can actually say that and mean it. That he has done nothing wrong. He was perfect in his relationship with the Father, in his relationship to humanity. The perfect covenant keeper. He doesn't deserve to suffer. But he was crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering. Or as verse 10 puts it, even though he doesn't deserve it, listen to this, it was fitting, it was appropriate that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Why is it so fitting? Why is it so appropriate and necessary that Jesus would receive his glory 
through suffering when he didn't actually deserve. According to verse 11, it's because of his connection to us. Because of his connection to us, the brotherhood between humanity and Christ, between the family bond between the heirs of salvation and the founder of salvation, or between those who are being sanctified and the one who sanctifies them. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies, he who makes holy, and those who are sanctified or made holy, all have one source, all have one origin. We're all part of the same family. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And again, to kind of illustrate that point, this family bond that Jesus has with all of us, he quotes the Old Testament again. He he puts the words of of Psalm 22 on Jesus' lips, which is very fitting when you remember that that's the very psalm that Jesus quoted from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, here he says in verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus identifies with us as part of our family. We are his brothers and sisters. And then from Isaiah 8, verse 13, he says, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's the great mystery of the Incarnation. That Jesus shares our humanity. Now it's interesting, in in chapter 1, the author emphasizes Jesus' divinity in order to show how he's better than angels. Chapter 2, he emphasizes his humanity in order to show that he's still better than angels. Because we have a bond with him. The eternal Son of God had to become like us in order to save us. The Creator had to step into His creation. The truly divine took true humanity into His divinity so that He could be fully God and fully human at the same time. The mystery of the Incarnation. So that, as verse 10 puts it, He could bring many sons to glory. This isn't just about him. This is what he did to save us. He became like us in order to save us, in order to secure our great inheritance in Christ. And this mystery is so great that the author continues to unpack it in verses 14 to 18. And as he does so, listen to how he emphasizes two points. The necessity of Christ sharing our suffering... And the necessity, excuse me, the necessity of Christ sharing our humanity, that's the first one, and the necessity of Him suffering for our sin. Both of those things had to become true for Him to be our unique Savior. And none of those things are true about angels. And so, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. He shares our humanity. That through death, suffering for our sin, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. He didn't become like an angel to save angels. They're not the heirs of salvation. 
but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, sharing our humanity, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, suffering for our sin. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is the better brother who brings us to glory by sharing our humanity and by suffering for our sin. And only Jesus is qualified to do this. Because only someone who is truly like us can represent us. If he's not like us in every way, he can't really be our substitute. And we, we throw that word around loosely today, the word substitute. Um, you know, we usually think of teachers or whatever, but you, know, you can substitute applesauce for vegetable oil in a recipe if you want to lower the cholesterol in your cake. We call that a substitute. That's really a way to ruin cake. <laughs> or, or we have all sorts of sugar substitutes, right? Splenda, equal, whatever. If you've ever compared sugar substitutes to real sugar, you know that's not a substitute. That's a sham. It tastes <laughs> nothing alike. And so we have a very loose idea of what counts as a substitute today. But Jesus isn't a sham. He's a real substitute. To, to be that, he has to be truly like us, of like kind, of like kind, just like the original. Otherwise, it doesn't count. A, later in, in Hebrews, he's going to make the point that a bull can't really take away the sins of humans because it's not human. He can't really stand in our place. So Jesus becomes human. He shares our humanity in every way except for sin. And he's no cheap substitute. He is the truest human ever to live. Because he's the only one to perfectly display the image of God in everything he does. He didn't just appear as human. He didn't just kind of look human. Sometimes angels do that. They show up, they make an announcement, they look human, but they're not. They're angels. Jesus didn't just appear human. He became human. To be our substitute. Even to the point of truly experiencing temptation and suffering. And because... He is that qualified substitute that because he shares our humanity. He is able to both represent us before God as our high priest and replace us before God as the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. He's able to do both of those things. He dies in our place, as he puts it, as a propitiation for sin. It's a, it's a sacrifice of atonement that bears God's holy anger and wrath against human sin. Jesus does it and he completely exhausts it. Which means, again, only Jesus is able to help. Only Jesus is able to help. He is the better brother. The brother who is able to secure the inheritance that we forfeited by paying the debt that we owe. He's the one member of the family who never forgot what was locked away in that storage unit. And you know, when we long ago turned our attention elsewhere and stopped paying the rent and forfeited our right to whatever was inside, our brother shows up, pays 
the penalty, drops the money for the rent, and secures that inheritance, not so he can run off with it by himself. See you, suckers. <laughs> he does it so he can share it with us. To share it with us. He, or to change the metaphor. He kicks down death's door, the debt that we received as our new inheritance when we forfeited our first one. He kicks down death's door, disarms the devil of his greatest weapon, unlocks our chains of fear, and sets us free. That's what he does. He's the better brother. And he does it not because we deserve it. He's obligated to share a dime with us. He shares it by his grace. Because he wants to bring many sons to glory. That's why he came. To redeem a people for God who will one day receive that crown of glory and honor and enjoy our righteous inheritance with Christ. He does it by his grace, out of his own mercy and kindness. In verse 9, it was by the grace of God that he tasted death for everyone. He didn't have to do that. And, and, and grace. Grace is not like declaring bankruptcy, where you just kind of, your debt is wiped out and you're back to zero. And now you can either kind of build up or go back down. That's not grace. Now, when we trust Jesus as our Savior and King, He takes that slate of our debt. He doesn't just wipe it clean. He breaks it and shatters it to pieces. He destroys it because His death is so sufficient and His life is so worthy that He, in giving His life for us, paid our debt a million times over. So if we belong to Christ, not only does he erase our debt forever, he then deposits an, an infinite inheritance in a secured account that no one can ever remove our name from. Because that name was written with the very hand of God. And nobody can erase that. That is grace. That is what our brother has done for us. And, and so, to the author's point, why would we ever neglect that? Why would we ever allow ourselves to become distracted or disinterested with that kind of glorious inheritance and that kind of great Savior? If this is what Christ has done for us, why would we ever try to live as though we ourselves earned it? You know, we... We've got, a, we've got some kind of rightful claim to what's in there. Or why would we ever settle for a lesser prize? I mean, to settle for, for what this world can offer, it's like forfeiting a billion dollars because somebody presents you with a shiny nickel. It just doesn't make sense. Or, or sitting in the prison cell when... You've already been vindicated and exonerated, and the guard has already opened the door, and you're free to go, but you just kind of like it there. <laughs> that makes sense. But when we neglect this great inheritance and live as though there's nothing really to come, or there's no 
power present with us through Christ. That's how we're living. That's the folly and the danger of neglecting our inheritance. If we neglect such a great salvation, how shall we escape? Verse 3. There's nowhere else to turn if we neglect this salvation. Apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins, and we look forward to death as an inheritance. That's it. That is the best we will do apart from Christ. As it's often been said, without Jesus, this life, with all its pain, sorrow, and fleeting pleasure, is as close to heaven as you will ever experience. With Jesus, this life, with all its pain, sorrow, and fleeting pleasure, is as close to hell as you will ever experience. We have a better inheritance. It only gets better from here for those who belong to Jesus. And so, may we cling to Jesus and keep our eye on that prize that's already been secured for us. And may we depend on Him in the meantime when we are tempted to look elsewhere or to settle for lesser things. That's a real temptation. And in the amazing thing is, Jesus knows what that temptation is like. The draw of the world, the lure to finding an escape. When you think of, of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, what the devil offered him, you can have all the kingdom, all the glory, and you don't have to go to the cross if you just bend the knee to me. He knows what that temptation is like. And yet he's stronger than that temptation. He endured. And so he's able to help those of us who suffer and are tempted as well. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows what we're going through. While we fight against sin and wait for our inheritance, and He has the power to overcome. He was tempted, but without sin. And so verse 18 in our text, because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted. When, when we lose sight of that inheritance, when we forget the great salvation that is ours in Christ, we not only have this inheritance, but we have a down payment in the Holy Spirit. The presence of Christ with us, who is able to help us say no to sin and yes to Christ because of the inheritance to come. And so may we trust Him. May we not neglect this great salvation. Because, and here's the most important thing, Jesus didn't neglect us. He wasn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, to share our humanity. He wasn't afraid to give everything, his very life, for our sin. He didn't neglect us. Let us not neglect him. Rather, let us cling to our better brother, who brings us to glory by sharing our humanity suffering for our sin. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess how easy it is for us to take our eyes off of the prize.
or how easy it is to, to lift our eyes upon ourselves as though we're worthy of the prize. And Lord, we know that's not true. There's only one human worthy of the prize. And we praise you that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters and to claim it on our behalf and to share it by his grace. And so may we not neglect it. May we keep our eyes fixed on our Savior Christ, who is better than angels, sharing your divinity and our humanity, who is uniquely qualified and who is with us right now by the Spirit, to help us put one foot in front of the other by faith. God, we praise you for your Son, for our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.